0: Welcome along. Great to have you along. I'm Tim. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. If you are new or visiting, a special welcome to you. Please stick around. In fact, please stay around for a or after the service. Or if you've got a, little, there's a care and connect card in your outline. Hopefully, you receive one as you come in. By all means, fill that out. We'd love to know that you've been along uh, uh, with us. We'd love to help you get connected if you're um, new to town or looking to uh, join join a church. Please, um, please do that. But uh, as we begin every week, how about we pray and uh, we'll turn our attention to this section of scripture. Uh, pray with me, please. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's uh, writing of it by your spirit to these people in Corinth who are at one level so far removed for us from us in terms of years, but not at all in terms of uh, the, the, necessi- the necessity of the message and the hope of the gospel. And so we ask that you would help us to hear and be challenged and changed along with them by your spirit uh, to understand, to know and respond to the truth of Christ. For your glory for our good we pray. Amen. All right. I want to know when was the last time you had to sit an exam anyone anyone remember the last time they had to sit I don't care what kind of exam maybe an exam at school maybe it was a driving test whatever it was can you remember the feeling of that day can you remember the anxiety leading up to the day can you remember the tense energy during the exam can you remember the nervous wait for the results I mean, did anyone sort of notice that the, the outline today it says test yourself and break into a cold sweat? What the heck is going on here? What are they going to pass out pens and paper? <laughs> and worse than that, what do you do when you've failed a test? How do you respond? Where do you go next? See, we're finishing up our sermon series in 2 Corinthians today and Paul will put this question, this test to the church at Corinth. He will say to them, examine yourselves, test yourself. And it's a natural right way to finish this likely fourth letter directly preceding his third visit, potentially his final visit to the Corinthian church. final if it doesn't go well. But he asks this question in order to prepare them for that visit. And before we turn to consider that question for ourselves, because it is a sharp but necessary question, a question asked in love, before we turn to ask that question for ourselves, I want us to look again at the text and notice again why this genuinely is a loving way for Paul to end his letter by encouraging them to test themselves. So what I want to do, in fact, you've got an outline there, hopefully. Let me give you a brief outline of where we're going. I want to be asking and answering these couple of questions why did Paul write the letter to the Corinthians, This, this what we call two, two Corinthians? There's, there's at least, well, how many things there? Six things that I want to see. Two put in the positive, not to be a burden, not primarily to defend himself. And then he'll make four positive statements to set the truth forward plainly, for their strengthening, to proactively address unrepentant sin, and to prepare him for their third visit. And it's in this line, this preparing him for his third visit, that he will charge them with the task of examining yourself, testing yourself. And we need to be asking and answering the same question. What does that mean? How does one examine themselves and test themselves? And what is the plumb line to test yourself against? That's where we're headed, folks. So please, by all means, scribble away um, in your outlines if you need to. But first, why did Paul uh, 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 write this letter to the uh, the Corinthians? I want to look at these couple first, put in the negative. That is, what is his his motive not in writing the letter? And the first thing to notice is he's writing not to be a burden to them. In fact, being a burden, that's the exact opposite of his intention. And we see this in several places. In fact, have a look with me. Turn straight away to the text. Have a look at chapter 12, verse um, 13. He says... How were we inferior to the other churches except that I never, I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. In fact, he's made a similar point already. If you skip back a chapter or two to chapter 11, verses 7 to 9, he says the same thing. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Paul asked this sort of funny rhetorical question. Was it a sin that he didn't ask for material support for them? Was it inappropriate for him to intentionally not ask to ask for support while he preached the gospel to them? Was it inappropriate That Paul used the money given by Macedonian churches to make ministry in Corinth possible? Of course not. That is ludicrous. That is nonsense. And Paul wants to underline this here to the Corinthians. In fact, have a look. What's the analogy that Paul uses to point out the ridiculousness of that notion? He uses the analogy of parents to their children. Did you notice this? This is the illustration he gives in uh, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 12. Have a look at it there with me. He says, I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Do you hear Paul's heart for the Corinthian Christians, for the Corinthian church here? It's one of parental care and concern, not selfish gain, not manipulation. He's not writing to be a rock in their spiritual shoe, so to speak. He's not trying to burden them unnecessarily. He is writing out of a care and a concern as a parent to a child. It's his first reason he's written this letter to them. Well, what else is not his motive for writing to them? Well, have a look at verse 19. He's not primarily writing to personally defend himself. Have a look at with me there. Have a look at verse 19. He says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Here again, he uses this rhetorical device where he clearly assumes the answer is no. Or if you're German, nein. I don't think there was any Germans amongst them but anyways. Now that should prick your ears up straight away. That should prick your ears up because from the very start of this sermon series, and in fact all the way through this series, I've been saying over and over and over again and pointing out things in the text everywhere to show precisely how Paul has been mounting a defense of his gospel amongst the Corinthians, especially over and against the incorrect teaching of the so-called super-apostles. Have you heard me say that phrase? You sure does, if you're listening. I've said it a thousand times. So what's going on here? Am I right or am I wrong? Was I speaking falsehood when I said that? Has Paul been writing a personal defense of himself and of those who have taught alongside him in Corinth? He mentions Titus and Timothy and Silas. Has he been writing first to defend himself and these guys or not? What's the answer? I hope that you were a part of Bible study this week. I hope that you looked at it in this week and hopefully you came to realize the answer is absolutely not. And yes, at the same time. What do I mean by that? I mean, Paul's primary motive in writing this letter is absolutely not first to defend himself or Timothy or Silas or Titus. That's not his primary concern. Rather, his main concern has been upholding and teaching and reteaching and correcting the Corinthians on the authentic gospel message over and against the incorrect teaching of the so-called super apostles. And the unavoidable and necessary byproduct of doing that, of upholding the truth, is effectively to provide a defense for himself personally. Do you get what I mean? It's not the main end; it's the, unnecess- the uh, unavoidable byproduct. I, I really want you to hear what I'm saying here. I really want you to see this. I want to put it slightly differently. Paul's main concern is not primarily a personal defence. That is, he's not first concerned about his reputation, or his pride, or his influence among the Corinthians for his own sake. His concern is that they know and understand and embrace the truth of God's gospel through Jesus for their own sake, for their own good. And by extension, this means encouraging them to stick with Paul's message and ministry, which is the authentic gospel. In fact, I want you to look at this. Look at how Paul puts it in the text. This is where he starts to unpack his motivations for writing to them, not in the negative sense now, but in the positive sense. Have a look at the words he writes here. Not why he didn't write now, but why he did write. Notice first the reason in verse 19. He says, not to provide a personal defense of himself, but he says, verse 19, we have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. That's what he's been doing, first and foremost. Now, I want you just to stop and reflect on those words a little bit. Do you realize the strength of that statement? Paul is saying that his first concern is to speak as one who recognizes that the only audience he needs to be concerned about is God alone. He's therefore underlining the supremacy of God over all. Infectively, he's calling God as his first and only witness. And he does so not trusting in himself, but because he is in Christ. It is King Jesus who is the sole basis for his confidence to speak like he does and he wants the Corinthians to be aware of this first and foremost. I'm not writing a defense of myself. I'm speaking the truth before God because I'm in Christ. Now, I want you to sort of think on that for a second. I really want you to sit with this for a minute because many people will often sort of go into a natural speech where they'll claim the same things. In fact, I know lots of preachers who like to invoke the name of Jesus at the end of every sentence. But do they understand what they're doing and what they're claiming? Do they understand the weight of what or who they're invoking when they say this? Or has it just become a kind of a catchphrase or a habitual way of baptizing what they have said in order to make it sound more authoritative than it is? In Jesus' name. You know what I'm talking about? Think on that for a second, especially if, even if and especially if you're someone who has fallen into that habit. See, I want you to recognize that the super apostles would have used that phrase too. They were claiming things and teaching things couched in the language of Jesus' name. But as we've heard, as as Paul has addressed in 11 verse 4, it was another Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel that they preached in Jesus' name. In fact, that's their biggest problem. It kind of reminds me, if you've seen it before, that sort of tattoo that gets around every now and again, only God can judge me. You've seen that? Yeah, a few people have seen that. Josh, have you got it? Yeah, yeah well, look out. This tattoo that only God can judge... In my experience, people who have this tattoo or who trot out this kind of a phrase do so as an attempt to buffer themselves from any critique possible from anybody. Often they do this because they know they're doing it something at odds with living for the common good, all the while forgetting that the fact the fact that what they've said is true. God is the one to judge them, and he will. See, it's a similar kind of thing, and it's a similar issue for the super apostles as it is for any false teacher of our day and age when they misrepresent the one true and living God, and invoke his name in doing so, it is blasphemy of the highest order. But it's not like this with Paul. And not just because he waxed it in Jesus' name at the end of every teaching point. No, but because his message, the gospel that he preaches, was and still is demonstrably obedient and in accordance with the gospel of the risen Jesus. That's why he can say, in Jesus' name. That's why he can speak as one in Christ. We'll speak on more of that in a minute. But that's the first positively put reason that Paul has written this letter to the Corinthians, to set forth the truth plainly to the Corinthians in full recognition that God alone is the audience and the judge of all truth. Quite literally and appropriate, Paul is speaking to them in Jesus' name. But what's the second reason for this letter here? Well, it directly flows on from the first. If Paul's primary concern is to speak truthfully and plainly to them in the sight of God, he does this because it's actually best for the church and the Christians in Corinth. He does this because it is actually to encourage and correct and strengthen them in their faith. In fact, Paul makes this very clear, uber clear. Have a look at the second half of verse 19 again of chapter 12. What does he say there? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ... And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. And do you get that? Actually, did they get this? It's so important that they did because unless they do, it would be very easy for them to carry on thinking that Paul is just being hard or harsh or quarrelsome or unloving to them. He was doing this for their strengthening, for their good. They needed to know this. In fact, fact, I say this because his third stated reason for writing to them in this section is, is to directly and proactively address specific, ongoing and unrepentant sin among them. In fact, did you see this in verses 20 to 21? Look at it with me again. He said, this is what I'm afraid of. In verse 20, I'm afraid that I'll find you guys still caught in quarreling, that is, discord, and jealousy, and fits of rage, and selfish ambition, and slander, and gossip, and arrogance, and disorder. And Paul's not just concerned that he'll find examples of those things among them. You know, for some of us, that's a Monday morning. Paul's not just concerned that he will find smatterings of instances of these things. He's concerned that these will be stable traits consistent accepted patterns amongst them that are going unchallenged perhaps even condoned and aren't being repented of or fought against did you notice how he speaks about that in verse 21 especially as it relates to their skewed attitude towards sex look at verse 21 impurity and debauchery are the words he uses to describe some of their behaviors of the corinthian christians in fact if you look at um one corinthians and two corinthians side by side it's clear that sexual sin that is an ungodly attitude and understanding and practice of sex and sexuality was a major issue in their day and age i read that and i sort of feel like you know welcome to 21st century corinth so is our culture less confused and or deliberately, ignorantly defiant of matters of sex and sexuality today? We're in good company when we read this letter, folks. And Paul's third reason for writing this to them and through them to us, it's to proactively address and confront any areas of unrepentant sin in our lives, especially those areas that are being accepted, maybe even encouraged, at the very least overlooked, either by the prevailing winds of their culture or the teaching of false apostles. But friends, this is what I want to encourage us. They, or they like us, we need, we need to be sure of this. We need to be aware that being directly confronted by their sin, it is confronting, it's possibly confusing, certainly disorienting, often painful to do so, but it is for their strengthening. That's true for the Corinthians. That's true for us. It is for our strengthening because the truth is the truth and it's never a good thing to prop someone up in a lie. In fact, if I can use an illustration here, it's a bit like Paul being an orthopedic surgeon. He initially came and diagnosed the Corinthians' broken arm, that is their misunderstanding and apprehension of God. And he set it straight with the authentic gospel cast and he planted a church in Corinth. And in his follow up consultation, Paul has come to realize that outside influences have twisted his work. The bone, so to speak, is refu- refusing together at the wrong angle. Maybe they ditched the cast too early. So, what's Paul going to do? Well, like a genuine, loving, diligent orthopedic surgeon, what does an orthopedic surgeon do in that sense? They re break the arm. <laughs> he rebakes the arm, he exposes to them the errors and the twists of their faith. And painful though it is, he rescrews it into alignment by teaching and reteaching and correcting with them with the gospel. He's doing it for their good. He's doing it for their strengthening. Painful though it is. Friends, I want to ask, do you get that, per- that analogy personally? I want to ask you, do you understand that analogy personally? Not just as you read 2 Corinthians, but as you read the whole entirety of God's word. Do you get that dual sense of being broken and rebroken by your sinful stupidity, by your rejection of God, both in the frustratingly consistent, similar sinful ways, maybe interdispersed by some sudden new and equally disgraceful ways? Do you get that? I, mean, I want you to hear me rightly on this. I hope you do. I do. I hope that we all, myself included, daily continue to come to a deeper understanding of the problem of our own sinfulness, whether they be the similar things that Paul lists there against the, uh, the Corinthians in 1221 or whether they are a completely different set of uh, trials and difficulties. I hope we all feel ourselves directly addressed and confronted by God's word on any and all areas of sin in our lives because it's true. But don't stay there. Don't stay in the helpless, hopeless, self-loathing reality of your sinfulness. Don't stay there. You see, the, this is the, magi- the, the miracle of, of the gospel. It's that God by his spirit through his word, brings us into this right recognition of our sinful stupidity, of our helpless, hopeless self-loathing. He brings us into recognition of that so that, empowered by the same Spirit, we might flee out of this to repentance and forgiveness and assurance and transformation and comfortable confidence in Christ alone. See, just as Paul is doing for the Corinthians here, God, by his spirit, through his word, will constantly break and re-break the bones, so to speak. Out of love, by his spirit, he will continue to expose the twists of sin in our lives in order to realign it to a dependent faithfulness in Christ or recognition of Christ's faithfulness to us. And God in his mercy will do this as often as necessary for your good and for your strengthening. Friends, have you, do you accept God's confrontation in this way? Will you accept God's confrontation to you in this way that you might come to rest in his comfort through Christ? Get this, it's painfully necessary. It's uncomfortably comforting. Do you know that? In fact, this is Paul's sort of final challenge to the Corinthians then in this letter. He's about to make a third, as I said, possibly a final visit depending on how it goes. And he tells them what to expect. In fact, first he's coming to witness firsthand where they are at. Have a look at chapter 13, verse 1. He quotes there from Deuteronomy. He's coming to establish a testimony by witness. It's his third visit. I'm coming to check you out and see where you're at. And that's not all he's doing. Secondly, he's coming to exercise church discipline when necessary. That's what he's talking about in chapter 13, verses 2 to 4. That is, he is prepared to come and pull, put people out of the church who maintain that they can live in blatant, unrepentant, somehow comfortable disobedience to Jesus and yet still claim the title of Christian. Paul's coming to call that out. That's not on. He intends to call it out where necessary. But then look at verse 10 of of chapter 13, because clearly we can see from this verse, exercising that kind of discipline is not his desire. Do you see that? In fact, have a look at chapter 13, verse 10. He says, This is why I write these things when I'm absent, so that when I come I may not have to be harsh in the use of my authority. What authority? The authority the Lord gave me for the building you up. Not for tearing you down again friends do you hear his heart as a pastor his heart as a spiritual parent his heart as one who bears genuine christ-given apostolic authority over them do you hear it his desire is not to have to come and discipline them it's not to have to come and confront individuals and put them outside the church in hope that they'll come to their centres and repent so that they might be built back in. That's not his heart's desire. He wants them to do this before he gets there. It's why he writes this pastorally pointy, sharp but loving exhortation to them in verse 5. In fact, look at verse 5 with me. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. In the faith, test yourselves Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. See, this is how the Corinthians or prepare for Paul's third visit. They are to examine themselves. They are to test themselves. Actually, really interesting, this word here, test, it comes from the Greek word, which means basically that it's the way you test precious metals like gold to check the purity. Essentially, this is what Paul wants the Corinthians to do. Check the quality of your faith. Where is it grounded? Where are the impurities that need to be further refined? He wants them to do this because he wants to say, is your faith of any value at all? Is it real gold or is it pyrite? You know what they call pyrite? Fool's gold. See, to the naked eye, it's difficult to tell the difference. Easy to be conned. The only way to be sure is to look closely at it, to proof it to test it against the actual mineral properties of gold, or in the Corinthian case, the authentic properties of faith. And so therefore the question must come, what is the test? What is the authentic, rigid base properties of authentic faith? Friends, we need to know that. Because it's the right and appropriate that we would do the same thing to examine ourselves to test ourselves. So friends, what is the litmus test? What is the base properties of authentic faith? I'll give you a clue. It's not where often people start. That is, it's not first in the quality of your life. Do you hear this? I want you to hear this. It's not first in the quality of your life. It's not in the presence or the absence of sin and good works in your life first. Now don't hear me say that the presence or the absence of sin and good works is unimportant. Absolutely it is, but they're not the base properties for genuine Christianity. Do you hear that? So if it's not the quality of your life, what is ground zero? What is first base? Look at the text. Paul says in verse 5, it is, test yourself, examine yourself, whether you are in the faith or as he then immediately rephrases it, to recognize Christ Jesus in you. Are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? See, friends, this is the make or break test that Paul wants the Corinthians and us to examine ourselves on. Are you still in the faith? Is Christ in you? What does that mean? It means that despite the sin in your life, which will be present if you're honest, Despite the sin in your life, are you continuing to trust Jesus for salvation and forgiveness and peace with God as you strive to be obedient to him, as you struggle against and even sometimes falter in sin? Friends, that's the basis for grace-based gospel faith, trusting Jesus as you struggle. That's the bedrock-based property of genuine Christianity. It's Christ in you the forgiven sinner, trusting in Christ alone for salvation and relying on his spirit to keep trusting Christ alone even as they keep on recognizing and battling against all the sin in my life. Everywhere and anywhere he reveals it. Friends, is that you? It's the question you've got to ask. Is that you? Are you someone who, because Christ is in you, someone willing and able, honest, to confront sin in your life. All the while trusting in God's assurance and his forgiveness to you personally because of Jesus' work on your behalf. And therefore, to keep on rooting out and repenting and struggling against sin in all its forms. Friends, is that you? And do you see how that is both confronting, crushing and comforting all at the same time? Do you see that? Do you hear that? i once had a lady who left church because she said at the end of church i just feel so downcast i can't do it anymore i can't come along because every week i'm confronted by my sin that's tragic because she never heard the other half of the story wasn't wrong what she heard but she never heard the grace bit confronted by sin that i might find comfort in christ that's the gospel that's base is it you do you feel both the confronting crushing and comforting call of the gospel if you do then you're hearing the gospel and it's great news you know, how did it end for the corinthian church we found ourselves asking this in bible study this week in fact someone said how did it end for the Corinthians? what how did they respond to paul's final letter did you did you wonder that As those who had heard the good news of the gospel through Paul, who had strayed from the good news of the gospel, been deceived by false teachers, had been corrected by the good news of the gospel through Paul's present letter and his constant ministry through them, the only question remains is, will they return to the good news of the gospel? Do you know the answer is, we don't know from the Bible how they responded. It's kind of left precariously hanging biblically, and I want to say helpfully so. Do you know why that's helpfully so? Because a more significant question for you and I is not how did they respond, but how will you respond? Friends, the question to ask is, have you heard the authentic gospel? Have you accepted the authentic gospel? Have you strayed from the authentic gospel? And if necessary then, will you now return to the authentic gospel of trusting in Christ and because of your peace with God through him, Therefore, trusting in the power of his spirit to respond in faith and obedience. Is that you? I started with an illustration about exams. Test yourself as Paul's charge here then to, uh, to them then and us now. But I want to help you understand the difference between that kind of a test and the exam that you sat at school. In fact, let me tell you the difference between good advice and good news. Some of you may have heard me use this illustration before. You know what good advice is? Good advice is the teacher telling you or telling the students, study hard. Practice lots, put in the long hours. Put in those long hours of work before you take the test. That is good advice, isn't it? It's good advice. But to pass this test that Paul is putting before the Corinthians and before us, he is not giving us the good advice of try harder. No, no. This is more like the teacher, the expert in the field, approaching you on the day and telling you, move over. Because he sat the exam in your place and he's aced it. Full marks. See, that's Jesus in the gospel. His work on your behalf. It's not good advice of try harder. It's good news. He's done it for you. Do you understand that yet? You'd be mad not to accept it, friends. Friends, we're going to do something now that we do at the end of every sermon series, a way of sort of summing up what we've looked at in the, in the letter to the Corinthians here. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together. It's a little symbolic meal of bread and juice. It's a physical reminder of all that we've been talking about. The good news that it's Jesus' work on our behalf that makes us right with God.